I-94 on Lumpen Radio. Good morning once again. My name, as always, is Jamie Trecker, and you are tuned into Lumpen Radio's I-94. I'm joined, as always, this morning by Mr. Jeremy Kitchen. Good morning. And Mr. Michael Sack. Morning, everybody. And today, we are also joined by a special guest. He is the author of Gun Metal Blue and a couple of other things, Mr. Joe Peterson. Joe, thanks for coming down. Thank you very much for having me. We really appreciate it. <clears throat> Joe, well, let's start off with a little introduction. First of all, this is a, a crime novel, and I think as we uh, go through the day, we're going to be talking about the genre and uh, detective books in general. It happens to be something that uh, I'm particularly fond of, actually, and, and write myself. Um, how did you, uh, first of all, just give us a little background. I know that you work at uh, the University of Chicago Press, is that correct? Yep. Tell us a little bit about how you, you came to this and how you uh, got, first of all, interested in writing and in genre fiction in, in uh, particular. Uh, I, I, I enjoy writing dialogue, and um, I you know, like the classic noir novels. Um, I've always been interested in um, writing non-genre sort of literary fiction. And so I've um, tried to explore uh, some of these genre uh, books by uh, flipping them, turning them inside out mm -hmm. and um, uh, making, making them more literary and less genre. Mm -hmm. Genre, folks, it's, it's interesting because genre fiction uh, has kind of a bad reputation nowadays. I think everybody kind of wants to be writing the great American novel. But the fact of the matter is that genre fiction, such as, you know, detective novels, crime novels, romances, these are the, the staples of everyday reading. And, you know, Jeremy, obviously, as a librarian, you know this better than anyone. This is the kind of stuff that flies off the shelf. And I kind of wonder, and I'd like to open it up, really, to a discussion of this. Why is it that, that genre fiction got such a bad rap when the original novels that we think of and really hold dear, Dickens, I mean, that was a serial novel, if we're talking about it correctly. A lot of these were originally genre novels. Yeah, what, French why did novels, too. Of course. Yeah. Why, why, did, why did the genre novel go down in expectation? That's a really good question. <laughs> Um, probably could teach a class on that. Well, you know, I think it also depends on the reader. Uh, we have a large, um, it, particularly older folks, senior citizens, still read a lot of genre fiction. Um, uh, one of the things that I think is, is you know, we've, you know, book selling now is, you know, it's a it's a corporate publishing. Not all publishers, but you know, the big guys. It's it's so corporate now. And they produce a lot of the genre fiction ends up being extraordinarily formulaic. So, like people like us that like to read literary fiction and things like that, um, you know, I, I usually turn to the horror when I want to read genre stuff. I know Jamie likes the space operas. I'll read anything. Michael read anything, <laughs> but you know, when I when I go to genre, I like horror because although they are often formulaic, you're going to have some kind of weird twist and. Um, I did want to mention too that Gunmetal Blue, although it is a detective novel, it's a it's a strange one. It's not what I would consider your uh, run of the mill detective novel. No, um, not at all. And, and we're we're going to get into that. We're going to get into that because we've got a bunch of readings actually from Joe's book. We're going to let people hear that. But but no. I think that to get to the point, I think formulaic is what would be the word that I would say that the troubles with genre fiction. But I do know. What's extraordinarily popular, what really kicked off with Gone Girl is the, the, it's, it's a new genre, but it's a thriller, you know, but they call it domestic suspense. And, you know, we always joke about if you put girl on something or disappeared or in, in the title, it's going to sell you that girl on the train. There's another one. I think it's like girl in apartment 10. So, mm -hmm. um, and I think, uh, you know, women like those because they're aimed at, you know, they they have a strong women protagonists, um, Although the one in Girl on the Train was not strong, she had some pretty big issues. But right. yeah, I think that's uh, that would be my best guess. I guess a, a good question might be, uh, well, who who the major critics are and, and why don't they cover genre fiction? You know, when I think of James Wood or the one from the New York Times, what's her Which name? Duke yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. A lot of them, just the books that they cover aren't. They don't really cover a lot of genre stuff. And, yeah, and I mean, I would I would agree with that, and of course, you know, if you look at the New York Review of Books, the, Marilyn Stasio has covered crime for years, but it's a it's a single page in the book review. It's um, usually like three books, right? Yeah, usually. Yeah. yeah, and I mean, usually it's from the 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 established presses too. You get something from Soho, you get something from Mysterious. 
uh, maybe from Houghton Mifflin or something like that. Uh, of course, this is a, a much smaller press. This Gunmetal Blue came out on, on Tortoise Press, which I'm actually not familiar with. Could you tell us a little bit about these guys? Yeah, it's uh, Jeremy Brennan runs uh, Tortoise Press, a small local uh, publisher. Um, yeah, he's he's published, um, um, I would say, about maybe 15 novels mm-hmm. uh, and a couple of books of poetry, maybe, mm-hmm. uh, by local authors and um, I think some non-local but Midwestern writers. Darren Doyle, I went to college yeah. with him. Yeah, he, he yeah. does. Darren yeah. Doyle, that's the Yeah, guy Darren was, uh, was in, uh, in the music scene in Kalamazoo. I was there for a brief period of time, and I, I knew Darren, although not well. Yeah, and uh, Jerry Brennan's a guy on the on the scene. I uh, I actually ran into him, met him actually at a book reading. Oh, uh, I think I was at the bookseller, um, maybe five or six years ago at a reading, and uh, we started talking. And uh, he's also a writer. Uh, he he uh, writes uh, some great books uh, on. Uh, Space, actually, space novels. No, oh, I love space opera. Yeah, it's James. Oh, it's, that's my thing. Oh, it's, he's got some. He's got some very good ones. He's got some, uh, a book uh, on the Venus flyby. Oh, that's very interesting. Oh. so he's a great writer. Um, uh, really, uh, a truly excellent writer, and uh, he has this uh, publishing company, and um, uh, he started reading my books, and I started reading his, and we started meeting regularly. And one day we talked about uh, doing a project together, and uh, I pitched this uh, book to him. And um, uh, you know, this is my fourth publisher that I've had, so I've had you know some experience with publishers. Mm-hmm. Uh, but working with um, um, Jerry has just been a great experience. He's a tremendous editor. He's a guy, uh, he went to college uh, at West Point. And um, this book here, uh, as you know, uh, deals a lot with guys who like to shoot guns. Yeah. And uh, he, he told me, he's like, I'm a guy who liked to shoot guns. Look, I went to West Point. I, uh, I shot everything you could possibly shoot. And so having that kind of guy uh, work closely with me on uh, editing this novel was really like a tremendous luck of good fortune. Kind of guy who's an expert on guns, actually. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm a ex-military, and I, I come from a long line of gun enthusiasts. Um, I have a very complicated relationship with guns, though. It's uh, yeah. but living. You, you are an expert. You are an artillery. Uh, yes, and I'm pretty pretty proficient with most weapons. Most small, so, small yeah. arms. Yeah, and that's what Jerry Jerry said the same thing, you know. And he, uh, he also said he has a complicated relationship. In fact. After I wrote this book, uh, he talked a little bit about that with me. He says, you know, um, uh, he, he said from my early youth, I, I was a, 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 gun, a gun nut. Uh, he said I, I, you know, went to West Point and, um, and uh, you know, one of the things he said was um, Sandy Hook really uh, knocked him knocked him uh, knocked him off his feet yeah. and it really changed his whole attitude well what changed mine guns. is um, <coughs> I actually shot an air 15 last two summers ago my nephew has one and um, being ex-military you know we were out and in, in, in a safe area my brother's property and shooting and, and after I shot it like I felt sick I'm like there's no reason that anyone should ever have this in their hands um, there should you know and that's why I have a complicated relationship because like my brother was a very um he was a good gun owner he kept mm-hmm. them locked in a safe he went out and shot brought him back he's a big hunter but you know you you read in the paper every day not just school shootings but like people leaving their guns out and their kids pick it up and point it you know that kind of stuff and i grew up with guns in the house they were in a locked gun cabinet mm-hmm. never never crossed my mind to go in that cabinet ever you know yeah. and i don't know if it was the way i was brought up to respect them or what but you know it's a it's a it's a weapon and it's dangerous and you know we have these military grade weapons now that you can buy like with no background checks and right. I, I, I don't buy into that you know and of course we're in a city with a tremendous amount of gun violence yes. and, and this book obviously deals and we should actually talk about what the book's about this book actually deals with a gun crime uh, the detective of the book um, Art Top uh, his wife is dead um, though he talks to her every day we should note that and one of the things actually uh I was going to ask you in the book, and it, it had me going for a little bit. I wondered if you had considered actually having her be 
alive in the supernatural sense through the book because I thought that would have been an interesting twist. Uh, but she is actually dead. She's been killed in the line of this person's uh, investigations. Our top is a detective, and we should point out he's not a very good one. Um, he uh, has not real busy. Well, he has come to the field. Uh, he was a telecom worker, and he's, uh, I believe, uh, watched too many TV shows would be a good way to put it. He thinks he can be a detective. The Rockford Files. Right, in particular. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and he, he likes shooting guns, which, I, which Joe has already mentioned, and he thinks that somehow this is going to uh, make him somehow a detective. So he's a very flawed uh, person, but he's he's convinced that he can be a detective. He's convinced his, his now late wife that he can be a detective, and she's killed in the uh, course of one of his investigations. The book actually uh, is a long meditation on grief. It's, yes. it's not necessarily a detective novel. And I think this is a good point, actually, if we've got a second. Let's hear a segment from this. Uh, today's music is by uh, Junius Paul. And as always, this is given to us by International Anthem Recording Company. You're listening to 994. We'll be back in just about two minutes. The first time Adeline and I slept together happened years earlier. It was just after she graduated from Northwestern. We had met only days earlier at a party, and then we ran into each other unexpectedly again at a grocery store. We had coffee, and afterwards she told me to call her. I waited a day or two, and when I called, she picked up the phone and, without asking me how I was doing, merely suggested I come over to her house. She was still living with her parents in Winnetka. We were only 22 years old at the time, as old as Meg is now. I was never one of those guys growing up who would bet his girlfriend at her parents' house. I prided myself on having better options, like the car or someplace deep in the forest preserves on a blanket and a bed of leaves. But the house Adeline grew up in was actually pretty nice. Her parents were out of town for the month, so there was no chance they would suddenly barge in on us. The house was a modernist box perched on a slight grade overlooking a precipitous ravine with woods and a little stream running along the bottom. They had modernist stuff on the walls, modernist furniture, minimalist this and that, all clean lines, off-white cream-colored walls, floors that disappeared into the night beyond the windows. Like Cal, I was a guy who grew up in a bungalow on the northwest side, which, when growing up, was paradise enough for me, so I didn't envy her wealth at the time, and that probably meant something to her. I enjoyed my life. I found if you liked your life, it didn't matter where you came from. Liking life was the key to success. So many people caught up in the chase for money, but it was terribly misdirected. Money never made anyone happy, but figuring out how to be happy and stay happy, this was success. And that was a selection from Joe Peterson's Gun Metal Blue. Again, music by the Junius Paul Quartet. And readings, as always, by Miss Shanna Van Volt. Um, I chose that segment actually because it was, uh, to me, a funny segment. Um, we were just talking about it while you couldn't hear us because the music was playing, but we were talking about it off air. Joe, can you take us through a little bit of uh, your character's mind here? Because he is, um, I think, a rather sardonic person, but also someone that's, uh, in a sense, kind of crippled by the fact that he can't let go of his of his late wife. Yeah. Um, uh yeah, you know, it's. Uh, it, I, I think you were right uh, describing it as a, a novel about grief. Um, it's also a novel about um, gun violence, and and like you say, it's a detective novel. And I wanted to look at the other side of the detective novel to get in there and understand the repercussions of people getting shot. And uh, one of the things I was uh, thinking about was, you read the headlines, you know. Uh, you know, uh, of all the shootings that take place on any given weekend uh, in Chicago. And then we move on to the next weekend. It's another set of shootings. And one thing uh, I feel that that is missing from the conversation is what's the uh, fallout five years down the road? And so this book uh, tries to look at um, a victim of gun violence. And, um, and it finds that this guy is beleaguered uh, by his own uh, grief. You know, he says, uh, people keep telling me, uh, get over it. He says, I can't get over it. Um, so there's that. And in his grief, at this, uh, this idea of his wife, he can't shake this idea of his wife. And at one point in the book, he even says, my uh, marriage uh, with Adeline was my Eden. And on some level, I think he wants to go back somehow to that Eden. He feels like he's been tossed out of Eden. And uh, that's why uh, in that particular segment we just read, he's, he keeps 
perseveratively almost going back to to those early moments of those uh, perfect days, which I think if you read through the novel, uh, you may get other clues uh, to the fact that they weren't necessarily as perfect as uh, he tends to imagine them five years out. Right. And actually, I was going to bring that up. The other thing that is interesting is that despite the fact that his wife was a victim of gun violence, he's not exactly stopping going to the gun range, yeah. which I think is, was a very interesting disconnect in this book. It's almost like he was going with it's Cal, his buddy, yeah. Yeah. like a therapeutic form yeah. of therapy. And I, I did want to mention one thing, too, before um, Cal and Art, to a lesser extent, you cover um, a, a population of Chicago that doesn't get covered in literature very much anymore, kind of the the older white northwest side guys, you know, Edison Park. Yeah. Uh, well, Jefferson Park's gentrifying, but, you know, down here, Bridgeport, you know, Beverly, Mount Greenwood, this uh, guys that have been in the city their whole lives, but it's a, it's a different, you know, because usually when we write about Chicago, it's like um, social problems um, in, in different communities or artists. or And I, I liked in your book, how, you know, the, the language, you know, it was very, Northwest side. It was recognizable yes. instantly. Yeah. Yes, it was recognizable. It wasn't politically correct. Um, you know, and that's that's did have pe- to censor some of it for these readings. Yes, I, absolutely. I point that out. But that's how people talk. <laughs> it you is, know? yeah. I was and and when people um, you know I've you know, I've heard criticisms of books. Like I recently read a book by Beaumont, he used to write for the Twilight Zone and he had some, you know, very racist colloquial language but it was written in the 50s and that's well, how we had people, charles williford of course a couple of weeks yeah, ago, yeah. yeah. and that's how people the same same sort of thing and you can't change history and you can't change the way people are to make it more tolerable for other people and i, I respect that in your writing i thought the the voice was very authentic yeah well one of the things i wanted to bring up is you what has attracted you to writing specifically about, I mean, this is a very Chicago book, it seemed to me. Um, is it just writing what you know about, or is there something deeper? Did you want to just keep everything in Chicago for another reason? Uh, I, You know, I grew up in Wheeling, Illinois, which when I grew up was a working class uh, neighborhood. Uh, the main character, uh, Cal, in this book went to Steinmetz High School. My father went to Steinmetz. My father was a bricklayer. So I grew up in a very working class uh, community. Uh, when I started out in life, you know, I, I worked all sorts of odds and ends jobs. Uh, actually did a lot of work with the Masons, uh, labored for the bricklayers uh, for many years, uh, worked in aluminum mill uh, for a while and that sort of thing. And um, uh, I was always actually interested in books when I was a kid. I loved reading books. And uh, um, you know, I went to Iowa State for a year, and um, that didn't work out for me. And I ended up at this aluminum mill. And I rem- remember reading uh, Henderson, The Rain King. Oh, I uh, love that. That's my favorite, Bellow. And I, you know, I saw, you know, Bellow went to the University of Chicago. And I just thought, you know, uh, I, you know I'd love to write books. And uh, if I... Uh, you know, if, if I want to write books, I should try to get to the University of Chicago like Saul Bellow did, which is what happened. I actually made it to the University of Chicago. But, you know, I went to the University of Chicago. Um, uh, you know, one day I'm, uh, you know, working with the bricklayers. The next day I'm, uh, you know, in some uh, fancy um, hall at the University of Chicago with all these, you know, well-scrubbed kids. And it was a real culture shock. Um, but... Um, uh, you know, I sometimes think that uh, the trajectory of my life has been, I grew up in an area and amongst a community of people that's actually underrepresented uh, in literature, as Jeremy said, and I feel like I came from that world, and, um, and somehow I went into, I, I made it to the University of Chicago, and I was able to develop uh, as a writer, uh, and as a result, um, uh, uh, communicate about the world I came from. So on some level, that, that experience I had growing up uh, with all those uh, people I grew up with, uh, I feel like I, I somehow got out of that world so I could write all about it. And so I, I write a lot about these guys. In fact, um, 
And my first book, uh, Beautiful Peace, <coughs> was also about a bunch of uh, guys like this in the Chicago heat wave. It, too, was uh, billed as a, a noir uh, fiction. And um, I was surprised to discover uh, that it was shelved at the Library of Congress under loser fiction. <laughs> <laughs> and I was, I was initially very upset about that. I'm like, what are you talking about loser fiction, you know? And the idea here was that uh, I was writing about, uh, about losers on some level. And, um, I, you know, I came to embrace that idea. You know, uh, I think the, the folks I write about, um, they've been kicked out of the family. They've lost their job. Um, you know, uh, these are they, these are guys just trying to figure out uh, how to get on with their day-to-day -day life. So um, that's the story of that. We've uh, we've called the novel uh, a meditation on, on grief yeah. and, and gun violence. And there are a few, uh, I want to say at least three parts in the novel where art is talking to his deceased wife and and she's saying you're you're feeling sorry for yourself and he says no i'm not she says yes you are and there's this repeated theme of self-pity yeah um for art and i i wanted to know if you if you in this meditation for you um if not directly in the book but in your mind did you relate self-pity and violence um you know, um, I I I think that um, the uh, characters uh, uh, Art and Cal um, uh, may have moments of of, of pity, but uh, they they're pals. You know, there's a lot of camaraderie there. Well, it's and, like they shoot for therapy. You yeah, know, and, and it makes them feel great, right? It makes them feel incredible Kale especially he has the, right. the oozy yeah he's very much <laughs> yeah and, it, and it's just like uh it's just tremendous giver of a sense of power uh shooting these guns and so that's why i think it's therapy because um because the grief has weakened them so much uh he's somehow trying to find his 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 power a little bit you know i mean on some level he's a, a wounded animal just trying to Get back, get somehow figure out a way to get back into it. I once shot a TV with a Uzi. It was pretty awesome. That's a true story. What what attracted you to writing about grief in particular, and and where did the the kind of root of this come from for you? Because this is a the, the majority of the book I would say is basically the meditation on grief and the fact that these guys are are uh, have lost something and they're not really getting over it. Did that come from a place of personal experience from you, or was this something you just wanted to explore as a novelist? Uh, yeah, I think it just grew organically out of the story. And actually, it was a hard book uh, to write. Not, not to actually write uh, in the sense of writing the prose, but it was a hard book to write because it was a, a very raw book about grief. And, you know, as I, as I wrote this book, it it disturbed my own sleep, and um, uh, it filled me with grief uh, uh, writing about this guy. So, you know, uh, you, you get inside the head of your character. You uh, understand this character loves his wife. Uh, you, you, you see what happened uh, to his wife, and, you know, he feels a tremendous sense of culpability. He feels like it was his fault, and he can't get over that, uh, that guilt feeling. And um, and so uh, as I was writing it, I, I think I just came to feel his his grief. You know? Okay, are you comfortable talking about the afterward? Yeah. Okay. So we learn in the afterward of this book that your brother, yeah, um, was a victim of guns, self-inflicted gun yeah. violence, and uh, was this in any way um, a reflection on the grief you experienced from the loss of your brother? Or did you write this prior to him? I uh, I wrote this. Um, I wrote this book uh, prior to, to that event, Okay. Uh, but uh, the book wasn't concluded uh, until after the event. So, uh, you know, uh, my, my brother, um, uh, yeah, died, died of a self-inflicted uh, 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 gunshot wound. And, uh, you know, to be honest with you, um, that fact made this book even more painful uh, to work on, I have to say. 
it was very, very difficult uh, to write write on that uh, subject. So. What about, you know, this book, and we talked a little bit about underrepresented characters, and I'd kind of like to get back to that, because this is an interesting topic that we don't really get a chance to talk about a lot, but there is a now an emerging uh, strain of what I'd call working class fiction. Mm-hmm. There's a much, um, a European strain of that, I think, is much more popular. You've got a, a wide uh, variety of books from Italy. I'm thinking of Elena Ferrante, obviously. Uh, okay. You've got a lot of people in Britain who have written about working class fiction for years. Well, I was thinking Lucky Jim on what you're talking about. Kingsley Amos, yeah. Yeah, because Henry I, Green, too, I think. Uh, I was going to say Henry Green, yeah. Obviously. When I got out of the military and went to college, it was the same. Like, I read Lucky Jim. I'm like, oh, my God. And I, I think, in my opinion, Lucky Jim, I could relate to it so much, but I think it's one of the funniest books ever written. I was, like, dying laughing. It's a hilarious right? book. The yeah. Living, of course, by, by Henry Green is another classic of – I'm sorry, know, what one? Living. living. Okay. Proletarian fiction. Why do you think it is, and I'd kind of like to open it up to the group, but Joe, I'd like to get your opinion on this. Why do you think it is that that the working class in America, particularly the white working class, have not necessarily been represented so much in popular fiction? And that when there are depictions of them, they get classified as loser fiction by the Library of Congress. <laughs> Uh, I think, you know, uh, I guess my uh, answer to this question might change day by day. But in general, I think, um, you know, f- folks who write fiction uh, have to tend to come from educated, uh, uh, you know, privileged. They're back. not going off to work at as bricklayers right yeah. after high school. Right, they go off to Iowa, you know. Yeah. Maybe well, they, Henry Green did. We should point out that Henry Green... Yeah, no, I'm saying there, there are there are no, but, exceptions to the rule. But yeah. about contemporary fiction, you know. Yeah. It's like the, um, the uh, you know, the, yeah, bricklayers aren't going off to the... Uh, don't have the... Don't have the wherewithal to get to the Iowa Writers uh, Workshop, right? I mean, or desire, even. Yeah, you know. maybe. Yeah, uh, and and not only that, but the uh, folks in the publishing industry uh, aren't necessarily coming up um, uh, th- through uh, through the uh, working class. Um, you know, I think the whole literary culture tends to be more of a. Uh, it's not really literary culture isn't working class. And, uh, you know, I'll we're t- trying to change that here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, and I, I tell you, I mean, uh, you know, my, my, you know, actually the working class on some level are uh, uh, outsiders. So I, I, I actually do feel like um, uh, there are there are folks writing books like this. There's a guy out in Pittsburgh named uh, Dave Newman who writes, you know, brilliant novels of truck drivers and this sort of thing. He was a cross-country truck driver, wonderful uh, uh, American working-class novelist. Uh, there are folks who are doing it, but I think it's hard to find, um, you know, literary publishers uh, who will support it. I, I think it's hard to find, uh, you know, uh, folks in some of these highbrow uh, magazines uh, interested in reviewing it. You know, I I just think that it's actually a class thing, and I think there's something excluded. This is a good place to break for one second. We're going to come back and pick this thread up, but we do have to take a break and pause for the folks that uh, do make the station possible. As always, you're listening to WLPNLP Chicago 105.5 FM. This is Lumpen Radio. We'll be back with more I-94 after these short messages. Nothing very interesting. I most often worked in conjunction with a couple of divorce lawyers. They'd send me off to ask people questions. My job, more often than not, was to establish an informal back-channel line of conversation to find out what was negotiable and what was not negotiable. In some cases, the legal warfare between divorcing spouses would escalate so rapidly that I was called to try and defuse the tension. I'd often meet one or the other or both of the competing spouses and I'd try to help them see things in a more reasonable light. Again, my goal was to try and diffuse tension, particularly in an escalating conflict. I always tried to meet the husband or the wife in a neutral and calming public place. I'd meet these people and I'd try and use the only tool I really have, the gift of gab. I had a long-standing conviction that a reasonable solution could always be arrived at through talk and as a result, that expensive litigation could be avoided. Sometimes I was successful at this sort of thing. Folks naturally found me to be approachable and reasonable. I had empathy for everyone I dealt with. I assume that everyone, except in very rare cases, is at heart a good actor. Let's face it, no one really wants to have to confront divorce head-on, especially when children are involved. 
So in my conversations, I would point to ways around the stress, the turmoil, and in many cases, the heartbreaking tragedy of volatile divorce proceedings. Let's everyone try and be reasonable here. If we're reasonable now, we can all get on with our lives. In divorce, there will inevitably be harm and foul, but of course, the shrapnel that comes from divorce can maim everyone, including the kids. A little effort working behind the scenes can reduce that shrapnel, so let's talk it out. Let's talk about a pathway that makes sense for everyone, including you. I was naturally pretty good at this type of work. My method was to wing it. I was always winging it. I felt I was always talking off the cuff and hoping for the best. Occasionally, I tried to imagine that I was on the receiving end of a divorce proceeding and how painful that would be for me. It was this thinking that guided me in conversations with estranged spouses. I tried to be as gentle as a lamb with them and respectful. To me, they had just found themselves on the wrong side of luck. For one reason or another, love, which had maybe sprung once true and beautiful, had turned south on them. I understood the hurt, the anger, and maybe this is why I kept getting called to participate in these sort of cases. But these cases never paid much, and there weren't enough of them to build a sustainable business on. At the end of the day, a lot of people preferred all-out warfare and divorce proceedings, shrapnel, and children be damned. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to WLPLP Chicago 105.5 FM. This is Lumpen Radio, and that was a reading from the book that is in my hot little hand, Gun, Metal, Blue, by Joe Peterson, out now on Tortoise Books. Uh, readings, as always, by Miss Shanna Van Volt, and, of course, music this week, uh, th- courtesy of the International Anthem Recording Archive, as is most often, with the genius thank Paul you. Quartet. Yeah, thank you to her. Uh, that was really wonderful listening to that. Oh, it sounded awesome. great. Um, I wanted, we, before the break, we were talking a little bit about uh, the kind of literary establishment and what that means for uh, the exclusion of some kind of, of books. And I kind of, again, I wanted to open it up to the floor because I think it's a really interesting thing, thinking that the idea that writing books is only available to a select few. And that certainly is not how I was brought up, and it's certainly not how I think. But I wonder if that's something now in our culture that is leading to um, – well, it certainly has led me to wonder if it is leading to a series of books, which I've, I've criticized previously on the show, which I described as a bunch of fiction just about professors and writing programs preying on their female students. Or artists in Brooklyn. Artists in Brooklyn. There seems to be a certain repetition uh, of the so-called modern literary fiction that we see in America. It's interesting that you mentioned that that article we were passing around earlier this week on Diaz. Juno Diaz, yep. Yeah, the, it, it mentions in there about the, the establishment capitalized protecting him in and I just I don't know what that who who is the establishment? Well, I think it's a good question. Of course, you've had uh, multiple publishers. I've had multiple publishers myself in, in writing, and I think that um, there is certainly a closed rank thing when you if you're making as much money as Juno Diaz was uh, for the Wonder's Life of Oscar Wilde. I mean, and and he obviously was in academia as well, which is, of course where he was allegedly preying on uh, women and other writers. There's there's a great amount of money and capital that gets tied up in that, because if you're somebody like Diaz who has a well-received book and you're in a writing program, you become a marquee name. Uh, the administration takes uh, steps to protect that because you're looked as a draw to going into those programs. I think at the other level, you know, literary culture in in my experience, and it's not the most you know most experience, but I have an agent who's in New York and I've been with a major house. It does seem to be a very um, upper-class cocktail party sort of group. And I think that when your interests are um, not aligned with that group and you're not talking about the same things as that group, uh, it becomes a little difficult for um, you to communicate with them in a way that makes them want to support your projects. And I think that's that's you know that's not fair or unfair. It's just how it is. I think that if you're writing a book, say, um, and I, I've criticized the Knicks on the show a, a couple times, and I'm going to criticize it again. But if you're, <laughs> you're writing, a, if you're writing a terrible book about a professor who's preying on his students, and and this is this is basically all you're you're doing, and it's this, it's yet another novel about a a professor who wants to write and can't write. That seems to have resonance with a certain group of people who are controlling things who probably also want to write and can't write and see that as a very uh, illustrative of, of how the world works, which is, you know, very unlike the guys sitting in this room. We're all sitting in Bridgeport, which is a very blue collar. Uh, it was previously a very monochromatic. Now it's a very diverse area. But this is predominantly still a very blue collar working class area. And the concerns that the guys around here have is where's the paycheck coming from? How do I put food on the table? Is my wife happy? And I think that's that's some of the stuff that, that Joe's talking about in his novel. 
as he mentioned uh, in the first half of the show, you know, our, the main character in this book, the detective, um, has a bit of uh, was a number of blind spots, but he's a major blind spot about his relationship with his dead wife. He thinks that that was that was wonderful and you know just magical a, a, thinking kind of thing, right? And that tends to be the kind of thing that does happen uh, when you suffer a huge loss. But it also tends to happen when your life doesn't have when you're living paycheck to paycheck, and the, that kind of thinking uh, becomes very seductive. And I think that was a, that's a very interesting point, Joe, that, that you kind of elicit and you tease out over the course of this book. Uh, and I'd like to if we could talk a little bit about that because I think that's something that that is you know not represented very often. Can I just say one thing before yep. we get off the subject too? I think the with the rise of the MFA culture is also another reason you're getting books about artists yeah. in Brooklyn and yeah. making it in Chicago and, and the professors that can't write because a lot of the, you know, a lot of these uh, MFA programs are like pipelines to publishers and, you know, and these, these programs want these kids to get published. So they promote it. And, you know, uh, like I know, like in my family, they stressed education, even though I came up very blue collar, but like, you know, a lot of the guys that I run with in Bridgeport, you know, they, they've all gone into the trades. A lot of them haven't gone to college and they weren't thinking about <clears throat> You know, yeah. taking off with their literary career, and it's not because they maybe don't know how to write or can't, but it's just that it was never guided in that direction. Right, but to, not to not to get off the subject, but that actually led to what I was going to bring up next, which was that's the capitalization of of literary culture. That's the selling of academia. Yeah, that that's actually commodifying. Uh, education about literature as opposed to people just writing books. There's now a whole industry that is set up to teach people how to write. And you know, mentioned the Iowa Writers Workshop. I went to a, a writing program at Syracuse University you know, 30 years ago, so I'm not immune to that either. But that is, is part of the overall commodification of education that I think has really infected a lot of our culture. And you know, it, that's why- Across it's the board. Uh, well, again, across the board. But that's, that's why it's really interesting to see a book that is from a working class point of view by a working class guy, because so many of the books that we see now are in that uh, there's there's been so much money pumped into the system at in the art world, whether it's arts or literature, that is designed to promote the capital capital consumption of this stuff, that it becomes refreshing when you see a book that is completely not like that at all and doesn't come out of that culture. Yeah, uh, <coughs> I uh, uh, I'm uh, to be honest with you, I was I had a friend over uh, this uh, he's uh, a house guest this uh, past couple of days. I was talking to him about that, you know, um, about how these writing programs were, uh, as you say, a pipeline uh, into the publishing industry and how, how I, I, you know, actually I didn't have the resources uh, to pursue that type of thing. But then I told him, I said, if I'm actually being completely honest with you, uh, I wouldn't have gone to them uh, even if I could have. Uh, I, always, uh, I always preferred walking the back alley to walking the main street. Uh, I always uh, tried to find uh, a less trodden uh, route. And I also thought, you know, um, I should teach myself how to do it. And if I couldn't figure it out, I probably shouldn't do it. And so I really was um, uh, focused on uh, uh, trying to figure out how to do it myself. Um, I thought it was important uh, for my, uh, uh, to create a voice uh, that wasn't touched sort of by a professor's hands. So uh, that's why I went that route. Have you ever gotten any negative feedback from people because you focus on working class characters in that voice? Um, I, no, no. I, I am interested in, in what you were talking about before, Jamie, the magical thinking um, yeah. and being related to circumstance. And, and we, should, we should note that Art's detective agency was completely funded by his, his late wife. Right, right. And, that yeah. is that is the most magical thinking of all. <laughs> I, I I will say though that um, uh, I have uh, talked to editors at uh, bigger uh, houses, and I I don't feel like they're looking at this idea of uh, a guy writing about working class guys from the working class as something they find very marketable. And Mike and I were talking about this during the break. Um, is that because um, uh, you know the working class guys aren't aren't reading this kind of stuff, 
uh, is it because uh, there's no real market? Uh, yeah, I mean, I know for working class the fiction? guys that I talk to, the the, the city workers and stuff. Yeah. If they do read, it's much easier for us to talk about nonfiction or like uh, crime, well, true crime with stories. The, with the the advent of what they call grit now, which was basically birthed by, well, really Flannery O'Connor, if you want to yeah, get down I mean, to it, but. Um, you know, people like Donald Donald Ray Pollock, it's it's like a caricature of working class. You know, it's yeah. like everybody's on meth and lives in trailers and there's <laughs> yeah. knife fights and, you know, people getting their faces punched in and on a daily basis, which probably happens in some places, and I'm not denying that. But there's a lot of people out there that just work hard for a living and they do jobs that might not, you know, you know bricklaying is a noble profession, but it's probably not the most exciting thing to describe in a novel, you yeah. know, or... Well, I'm that's sure what the characters you work with are exciting, though. Th- yeah. That's what's exciting about fiction to me is is it ki- a good work of fiction can get inside the thinking of characters, and the thinking varies through through different classes. That's right. why I was interested in, in that in that question you posed. Yeah, and I think one of the other things that we're seeing now is the decline. You know, you mentioned that you know editors at other houses may not be interested because it's not marketable. We've seen a real decline in what used to be called the midlist authors. There used to be a much wider variety of fiction yeah. that was put out to sell what 10 to 30,000 copies. Now look, books books have, you know, we we've talked on the show about the decline or the the alleged decline of books. More people are in fact reading than ever before and I think that's a great thing. But the big houses tend to either put out stuff that is uh, the next Harry Potter or they take very few chances on, on very small stuff, and it tends to all, as I think we're kind of circling around, comes from the same kind of, same group of people, you know what I mean? Uh, most of the new books and most of the new literary fiction I, I read um, or see tends to come from moneyed people either on the East or the West Coast who come from an MFA program, uh, and that's part of the, the commodification of the business. And I think that's an interesting thing to talk about because I, I wonder what we've lost by that. There's a lot of great books that used to come out on the mid-list and quirky stuff. We, we've talked about crime books. We've talked about thrillers and genre books, and those those have disappeared. But I'm going to get all Marxist on us, but I, I wonder if it's also part of like the decline of living wages from uh, for like the the working class, you know, the decline of unions because, you know, if you are working, you don't have to. You know, some guys have two or three jobs. Like we we had that tower dog Delaney yeah. on here. Yeah. Those guys don't make anything, and that's like one of the most dangerous jobs in America. Right. And I wonder, you know, if that would be something to tie into if you had a little more leisure time. Oh um, yeah. And and I I also think too, um, you know. I think and this is my opinion, you know, and Nelson Elgren said it, and I heard Tim O'Brien say it too. You have to read a lot to be a good writer. I don't think there's any way around that. Right. Um, and some of these so-called, I guess, MFA lit, <laughs> that's maybe we can coin that. Yeah, put um, a pin in that one. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you, you read some of these books, and it's like you need to just go out and live your life a little bit and read a whole bunch of stuff, mm-hmm. like take a summer at the library and just read all summer long, and then maybe you know start out with a short story. You know, talking about what's lost, though, um, you know, during the uh, last presidential election, you know, Hillary made that Hillary Clinton made that unfortunate comment about the deplorables. Right. And um, I think we could both all agree here in this room that uh, the characters of my book uh, might be uh, the group of people that she's talking about. Oh, I think there's no question about it. It's elitist. uh, elitist I also feel like um, we could all agree in the book that some of the characters uh, have some deplorable, show some deplorable behavior. Right, yeah. However, um, if... um, if you don't have access into what's really in the hearts and minds of these characters, then it's easy to say, oh, uh, they're deplorables. But for me, uh, what fiction can do is, um, and, and I don't think my book is political in the slightest sense, except in this way, uh, I think it's very political, which is it shows the humanity of these guys. And so I think what happens with uh, what's lost by this, um, at keeping these sorts of char- characters out of the mainstream uh, literary 
conversation is uh, you're, uh, it, it, it gives people liberty to say they're deplorables because they're not inside the heads and minds. And I feel like if uh, more books like this were published on, uh, on, on guys who wear steel toe boots and uh, safety, you know, neon green uh, safety vests, that uh, you might be able to see into their, that, you know, on some level, yeah, there's some deplorable behavior here, but still uh, they're, they, uh, they're good, you know, in, in some ways they view themselves as good people, uh, capable of uh, loyalty and, and friendship and empathy and kindness. Uh, and I think that's, that's what's lost if you keep these guys out of the conversation. And that's one of the things that uh, I really feel passionate about. I think it's an outstanding point. And I think that uh, when we were talking earlier about Henry Green, you know, when his novels were out about the working class in, in Leeds and Birmingham in England, that did spark a conversation because people had not realized uh, about the inner lives of the factory worker and stuff like that. And that did start a conversation uh, among the, the perceived elites, or at least readers, about what life was like in those conditions. And we, we have lost that in America in a lot of senses. I think you're absolutely correct. If anything, if we only get grit-lit caricatures of people on the one hand and we only get novels that are written you know, by people coming out of very expensive universities on the other, then we are missing a whole swath of people that don't feel represented in a number of ways. And I think it's safe to say your characters probably, um, were they real people, would not feel represented or would not see representations of themselves anywhere. They wouldn't see it on television. They wouldn't see it in movies. They certainly wouldn't see it in newspapers, and they, and they wouldn't see it from their politicians. Yeah, and uh, it, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a big place, right? <clears throat> yeah. And so uh, 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 I'm actually uh, very grateful that, uh, that I, uh, for my circumstances that I can actually try to give voice uh, to these people. Yeah, I would never change the background that I came it was in, you know, when you were talking about, the, I have my stepbrother's a mechanic. He's a Trump guy. And it's like, you know, we have conversations, rational conversations. We're not fighting on Facebook. But, you know, I love him. He's my brother, right? right. And maybe you don't, and I can't imagine all these people in America don't have somebody in their family, you know? Right. And um, I'll, I'll, my brother's very intelligent, though. And, and, you know, we have conversations about things. But, you know what? It's his views. He's still my brother at the end of the day. And, I, and you know, I don't hate him for his views, you know, and it's like, and I think we have this, like, the, the polarization is like, you're here or you're there. And everyone's mentioned it today. We have this whole kind of middle area where people yeah, can. It's all about the vote. Yeah. Well, and, what, what, one of the things. Life's that, much bigger than the vote. One of the things that I, uh, you know, I, I like to say sometimes uh, that I write stupid talk, you know, to store the stupid way people talk to each other. But, um, but I also uh, want to show that uh, uh, my characters who may speak, you know, in this sort of um, broken way, I want, I want to try to show that their own intelligence. You know, I think it's really important to show uh, their human intelligence as well. So I've always uh, s uh, strived to do that as a writer is, like you say about your, your brother, you know, he... Uh, uh, you guys get getting lots of arguments, political arguments. He's no, your, we don't argue. Or, but he's your he's your he's your brother, and he's a smart guy. Yeah, and I, I think listen to him. I don't argue. Yeah, with but him. that's but I think it's important. I, I think it's important to recognize like the the guys uh, that you see uh, working uh, uh, on uh, on repairing your streets and stuff like that. Those guys are smart guys with stories of their own. You know. Right. Right. And I think that's that's actually been lost. We don't have enough of those conversations. We only have a, a couple minutes here, and we do have one more reading to play. Joe, I just wanted to thank you, first of all, for coming on the show today. Thanks. And thank you guys very much. This is a Gunmetal Blue uh, from Tortoise Books. It is, I believe, tortoisebooks.com. You don't have your own website, uh, but you can find out more information, uh, certainly just by Googling Gunmetal Blue. I, I know there's a search engine out there that'll work for you. Joe, what? just before we, we wrap up here and go to the final reading, we always like to close the reading to give you the last word. What's coming up next for you? Uh, what are you working on next? Uh, I have uh, a, a number of manuscripts I'm working on right now. Uh, I got one book called uh, 99 Bottles, which is 99 short stories uh, of the drinking life of guys who sit in bars uh, drink. Uh, and then I'm writing another uh, 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 book called The Woodsman, uh, which is looking at another dislocated dude who's a traveling businessman. Uh, he covers uh, the entire continental U.S., and he's dislocated from home, too, hasn't been able to form any relationships. And he forms a sort of imaginary relationship with this woodsman who keeps coming up from uh, his background. So that'll be my next 
possible project. Awesome. Well, we've been talking again. Joe Peterson, thank you so much. Gunmetal Blue, Tortoise Books. Guys, we'll be back in two weeks, right, from Pills and Community Thanks. Books. Yes, sir. And uh, you can get more information on that on Pills and Community Books website or i94.org. For everybody from Lumpen Radio, I'm Jamie Trecker. For Jeremy Kitchen, for Michael Sack, have a great week, and we'll see you soon here on i94. People always telling me to forget it. Get it behind you. What's done is done. The past is dead. Move forward. But I always say it's so easy telling someone to forget. Telling someone is as easy as pie. All you have to do is say it and you move on unscathed. But for me, I, I wasn't unscathed by the incident. It really broke me. I mean, snapped me in two. Broken. Broken. Busted. Just cracked in half. Unfixable. I didn't think at first I would be so broken by this, but time doesn't seem to have made it any easier. I kept figuring time was going to be my friend on this, but time has failed me. Let time heal you, as they say, but time hasn't healed a thing, only made things worse. None of my wounds are healed. If anything, it's only gotten more painful with time. I have a hard time sleeping. I can't concentrate. If I lacked motivation to get out of bed before she was killed, it's been impossible now. It's the reason why I always show up late to work. I show up and there's Wanda looking all bright and fresh as springtime flowers, and I'm always half dead because I couldn't sleep because all that was going through my head during the night was how she was killed. So much for counting sheep. And for what? There were over 80 people from all walks of life at her funeral. Six people stood up to eulogize her. I was asked if I wanted to say a few words, but what could I say? That the whole thing was a desecration? Just a friggin' desecration and I was to blame? Stop blaming yourself, people tell me. That's crap. Take responsibility for your actions is what I say. I was the reason. Me and no one else is why this whole tragic thing happened. Had I been more responsible with the Glock, none of this would have happened. Had I decided upon a different career, as she had suggested, none of this would have happened. But my wife was very supportive of me. She was supportive of Meg as well. She always told both of us, whatever we want it to be, we can be. And she said she'd support us 110%. What was I to say about her at her funeral? That she was behind me 110%? That I was too stubborn to change my ways? Books and Literature program airing every Sunday at 11 a.m. Central. This episode featured the book Gunmetal Blue by Joseph Peterson, out now from Tortoise Books. This episode originally aired on May 6, 2018. I-94 is a Lumpen Radio production with readings by Shanna Van Volt, show intro and promo voiced by David Green, music by Laurie Johnson and Bill Bennett from the KPM Archive. For more information on I-94 and for past episodes, visit eye94.org. For more information on Lumpen Radio, visit lumpenradio.com.